Technology is defeated. Let us return to the island and celebrate by counting rocks. Yeah! I'm Yay! Whoa, whoa. No one wants to count rocks more than me. But our mission is not complete. Hey, welcome to the Tech Weasel Podcast for Friday, May 29th, 2020. It's our lucky 13th episode, and if you're a new listener and you like what you hear, I hope you'll come back and check out my previous podcasts as well. Um, as always, I'm your host, Paul Huzinga, and as always, today you're going to get a peek inside the murky workings of my brain again this week. Alright, so when I was growing up in the pre-internet days, there was one book that everybody I knew checked out from the Riley Elementary School Library multiple times. Now, published by an Irish brewery to settle bar bets, the Guinness Book of World Records was our window on the world, specifically the weird parts of the world. Back before social media was around to drop crazy stuff, like, straight into your lap, the Guinness Book was where you had to go to find information on, you know, the world's fattest twins, uh, learn how long a two-headed snake could live, or see a picture of a guy in a turban with creepy 20-inch long fingernails. I must have checked out that dog-eared paperback a dozen times, And one of my favorite things that I learned from the Guinness Book was that there were people living on a Pacific island called Yap who used enormous stone wheels for money. Now, as a kid, it's one of those things that sticks with you. You might have some pocket change on you to buy an NFL team pencil from the vending machine. And it was always the Dolphins. Nobody ever wanted a Dolphins pencil. Or to get some plastic lacing from the janitor who sold lanyard-making supplies on the side. But here are these wacky Polynesian savages with money the size of an earth mover tire. How crazy is that? Then you grow up and you go on to other things, and maybe Yap Island money becomes the punchline to inside jokes with your circle of adult friends. But for the most part, you don't think much about it as an adult. But as it turns out, those giant stone wheels actually make perfect economic sense, and their creation and use are a textbook lesson in things like fiat currency, and even the blockchain technology that underpins cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. To make sense of all that, we're going to need some context. Yap is in an island group in the Caroline Islands in the western Pacific Ocean. Today it's part of the Federated States of Micronesia, and it sits east of the Philippines, uh, north of Papua New Guinea, and southwest of Guam. The closest major island is Palau, which is about 320 miles of open ocean to the southwest. Geographically, the four main Yap Islands were formed by an uplift of a tectonic plate rather than being volcanic like uh, Hawaii or many of the Pacific Atolls. Now, as you might imagine, being so remote meant that the Yappies people were extraordinary seafarers and navigators out of necessity. The islands had plenty of fresh water, they were dense in vegetation, and the surrounding coral reef provided a good environment for fishing. But the one thing the Yappies didn't have was easily quarried or carved stone. Now, Keep in mind that prior to contact and trade with European explorers and colonial powers, metal tools just weren't a thing there. Being adventurers and traders, the Yappies had been in contact with Palau, going back and forth with goods like, you know, copra, coconuts, shell beads, and other luxury items and commodities for a long time, despite the 300-plus miles of open ocean that separated them. Now, somewhere prior to the year 500 AD, the people of Yap started importing sandstone from Palau. As a relatively soft material it was possible to work it with the tools that they had available, and it wasn't something that was naturally found on Yap. It was likely that it started out being used for things like small sculptures and decorative objects, rather than being used as a building material. 
As time went on, the demand for sandstone grew, and it became a luxury good in and of itself, since it required a substantial investment in trade goods to swap with the residents of Palau in exchange for quarrying it, plus you needed to make the 650-mile round trip to get it. If you had a big chunk of sandstone on Yap, you were clearly a baller because you had the excess wealth needed to get it there. Over the next 500 years or so, the process got refined to the point where pieces of stone weighing as much as 4 tons were being imported. Now, for practical reasons, a wheel shape made the most sense since you could stick a tree trunk through the center, and with the help of a hundred of your closest friends, you could use that to carry and roll it from the quarry on Palau down to your giant raft, sail back home to Yap, and then park it outside the entrance to your village. During the span of time that Genghis Khan was conquering Asia and the Black Death was killing one out of every three people in Europe, the Yappies were inventing some pretty modern economic concepts based around the creation and trading of these ray stones, that's spelled R-A-I. And they made them in all different sizes, although we're most familiar with the giant ones, down from like the size of silver dollars up to the monumental ones. For example, person A might get his household's extra coconuts, copra, shell beads, and whatnot together, and make the trip over to Palau to buy a stone. After bringing it home and propping it up outside the family compound, his neighbor, person B, might take a fancy to it, and instead of going to Palau to get one for himself, he might strike a deal with person A to take ownership of it in exchange for you know, his daughter's hand in marriage to person A's son. With the terms agreed upon, and A and B announce their trade to the world and all is well. Now a few years down the line, B decides he could use some more livestock, so he starts chatting up person C, offering to exchange the ray stone for his flock or herd or whatever. And so it goes generation to generation, with ownership of the stones passing from one person to the next as a form of currency, and each transaction becoming part of the oral history of that particular stone. Now, if the stone's big enough, it probably doesn't get physically moved each time ownership changes. That's asking for damage, and it requires a lot of effort, obviously. But everyone knows that the eight-foot stone wheel that sits in a particular place on the island belongs to so-and-so, who traded for it with this other guy, who got it from my great-great-uncle, and all the way on down to when it was first quarried. Now, the value of the individual stones, as with the value of anything in a free market, depended on what people were willing to pay for them. People recognized that larger stones required more effort and resources to create, which gave them a higher perceived value. The quarrying of some stones resulted in the loss of life for those doing the work, and that could increase the value of the stone because of that cost. By the same token, stones that were quarried without anyone being killed or injured could also command a premium for the right buyer. And of course, the ownership history of the stone gave it value as well. Previous famous owners or ownership by people of high social standing all made a ray stone worth more. Eventually, the value of the stone was only loosely connected to the actual physical object. It was the oral history, or what we refer to today as the blockchain or distributed ledger, that reflected its true value. Nothing illustrates this better than the story of one particular ray stone that was lost at sea between Palau and Yap. Now, after everyone involved had their, well, crap moment when the raft sunk, they took some time to reflect on what had happened and realized that somewhere five miles down at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, that stone still existed, and it was still owned by the person who had paid for its creation. It didn't really matter that nobody could see it or touch it anymore because everyone agreed that it was still real and still, therefore, valid currency. The story of its loss became part of its history, and it was traded just like any other stone. Alright, so at this point, Whitey shows up and makes things more complicated. As early as 1528, Spanish explorers had happened upon Yap, but contact with the world outside of Micronesia was sporadic at best, 
even though the island was technically a Spanish colony from the back half of the 17th century onward. Being so remote meant things more or less went on as usual until an Irish-American sailor named David O'Keefe was shipwrecked there in 1871. Now, O'Keefe got up to speed on how the local economy worked pretty quickly and started helping people acquire raystones in exchange for payment in copra and sea cucumbers, which, if you can believe it, were in demand in the Far East. He started exporting these commodities in exchange for iron tools, which were exceedingly rare on Yap and Palau at the time. Now, of course, iron tools make it way easier to quarry and carve sandstone, so in short order, there's a surge in inflation in the local currency because the market gets flooded with cheap, huge raystones. Now, fortunately for those who held ownership of the ancient stones, their value held because it was established through their history, not their utility or their size. Now, by the start of the 20th century, the outside world had swept Yap and her people up in its squabbles, and in the wake of Spain and Germany arguing over influence in the region, the raystones were no longer quarried or widely traded. World War II was an extra scoop of manure on top of the ice cream, with Imperial Japan taking over Yap and using some of the stones as anchors or even breaking them up for construction material. Now today, the Yappies use modern currency for everyday transactions, but they're still proud of their economic heritage, and raystones change ownership for special occasions, with a new name added to a long list of previous owners as part of their history. It goes to show that there's really nothing new under the sun when you think about how much Yap money has in common with modern cryptocurrency. It derives its value not because of its intrinsic usefulness, like, you know, gold or crude oil or pork bellies or whatever, but because of the difficulty and resources required to create it puts limits on its supply. Although a raystone is a physical object, as currency, it's the same as a number written on a piece of paper or a group of ones and zeros in a particular order stored on some hard drive. It's valuable because people agree that it is. The example of the stone on the bottom of the ocean shows how durable it is as a store of wealth, even if it can't be touched or seen. One way that is very different from something like Bitcoin, though, is that by virtue of its oral history, there's no anonymity possible for transactions using Ray. On the upside, it also makes it impossible to steal. Even if you could make off with a four-ton stone wheel, you couldn't trade it for anything because everyone knows who actually owns it. So from our starting point in a paperback book intended to settle drunken arguments, we've seen how some economic concepts that we all work with today were sorted out centuries ago on a tiny island in the middle of a vast ocean. You can almost say we've reinvented the wheel. And on that terrible pun, we'll wrap things up for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll join me again next Friday for the next podcast. In the meantime, spread the word and check out Jeff the Second on YouTube, who provided our awesome bumper music. His link is in the notes below. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.
for me. I need you to 